This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Joy Dangora Erickson. She's joining me to discuss ways to help kids learn about racial intolerance. She's an assistant professor of early childhood education at Endicott College. Welcome, Joy. Thank you so much for having me, Robin. So I'm going to start out with an easy one. Why is it important to talk about race, racism, and racial intolerance to kids? It's unbelievably important. I think everything that's going on in our society um, today kind of amplifies why it's so important, but I can speak from personal experience in many of the preschool and kindergarten classrooms that I am in on a regular basis. They're already talking about it, right? And they're talking about it from all different angles, some um, with fear and different anxieties, others in ways that are harmful to themselves and others. Um, So it's out there and I, I feel more than ever, it's our responsibility to meet them where they are and kind of get ahead of this. Um, We know that the foundation that we set early in life, um, it builds, right, and it moves with us. So it's just a really important conversation to be had. Now, how can parents start the conversation um, about race and its harmful effects um, when it comes to racism in an age-appropriate way? Yeah, so first, let me just say that there's never too early a time to begin doing this work. It just looks a little different. Um, whether you start, and I I will talk later if, um, if, if you welcome it, about some of the research that shows implicit bias, implicit racial bias that... Um, that occurs over the first year of life. Um, So what we do in the first year of life will look very different than what we do um, in preschool and um, there in elementary and early and later elementary, Um, but this needs to occur at all stages. And so for example, what you might be doing in early childhood is, or in the first year of life is mere exposure, right? Making sure that very young babies have opportunities to interact with people from other races that see images, right? Um, whether it be in books or just in the general surroundings, if they're in a daycare setting, right? That everyone's represented. Um, this looks different in preschool when you are able to reason with children and have real conversations around skin color and our differences, right? And these really rich discussions about fairness and other concepts. And and then it builds from there on up and we have different techniques. But to start the conversation, which is I believe the question you asked, um, you have to do some probing. And I do this work with my early childhood undergraduate and graduate students, right? You can take any situation that the child's involved in, assuming that that you can have a conversation, right? For example, on, on the playground. So you went to school today, who did you play with on the playground? Tell me more about that. Why did you play with those, those particular kids? Why didn't you play with the other kids, right? And it's very important to not be afraid of what you may hear back um, because that is the, the point, right? That's the teachable moment. That's what you seize upon and, and you recognize that I, I caught this, right? And we're gonna have this rich discussion. You can do the same kind of thing with, with picture books. Who's in this book? What color are the characters' skin, right? Which one would you, and if they're, if it's a more diverse picture book, who would you like to play with? Who would you like to have over for a play date? Why do you think that way? Um, and so these are kind of the entry points that we use to assess, more or less, explore, probe um, what our young children are thinking. 
I was going to say, it sounds like um, the why is very important to make sure we're asking and understanding what their thought process is to help guide them through it. Is that correct? Oh, my goodness. You hit the nail on the head. Yes. And I've been having conversations with student teachers all morning about the why. <laughs> the why is everything from a motivation and engagement standpoint. Yeah. And from you, from this mutual understanding, I understand where you're coming from. So then we can kind of um, bridge what we're going to say from there. Now, is it better for the adult uh, in, in a child's life to start the conversation about race or should you wait until the child comes to you with questions? Yeah, no, don't wait. <laughs> don't wait. We've been waiting for too long, right? Um, I, I, I absolutely think you should beginning the, begin this conversation now if you haven't already. Um, there are so many fantastic resources out there to support you, but waiting, you don't want to wait till your child has said or did have did something right um, that was harmful to themselves or someone else and then you are having to um, kind of come at it as a more defensive instead of an offensive right it, the best the best thing you can do is begin this conversation and start making sure that there's that you're comfortable and it, it's it's an uncomfortable conversation but you build that comfort as you move forward now can you help me understand the differences between race ethnicity and nationality so race, ethnicity, and nationality, um, race is a social construct, right? So race is something that we constructed um, with our social language to put people in categories, um, which is a little different than ethnicity, though for our purposes, what I teach, I often group those two together. Ethnicity has more to do with your origins, where you're from, right? And then, I'm sorry, the third one is nationality is the country of- Nationality. Right, the country which you're a citizen. Um, so those are important distinctions, but Rate, I think most importantly is to recognize that race is a social construct. There's no biological basis whatsoever for race. And understanding that it helps us come uh, and answer questions for, for, for the kids in our lives in a different way. So when you ask someone, well, let me ask you, what's the best way or what wording can I use to begin and explain to a child like, okay, race means this, nationality means this, ethnicity means this, because I think a lot of people have that misconstrued. A lot of adults have that misconstrued, let alone a, a kid. Yeah, I mean, I think when, when we talk about race, some, a, an activity that I've done in preschool is to have children trace themselves three times, right? And so in that first activity, when we talk about race, and I don't, I don't usually, like I said, I don't usually tease out race, race and ethnicity, but I will tease out race and nationality. Um, that first one is what people see about us, right? What they see, what they think about us, it's all, not always necessarily true, um, but the color of our skin certainly factors into that. Our hair type certainly factors into that. Like our physical characteristics factor into that first, um, that first drawing we do. And then in the, in the, in the second one, it's more about your country, where you come from, your, your place of origin, and what do people think about that? There are certainly things that we can say that are 100% grounded. Our flag looks a certain way, right? But we don't have an official language, right? So English isn't technically the recognized official language. So that's an interesting conversation too um, that, that can be had with young children. And speaking from experience, I was in a, a, an a inner city setting, um, in a Northeastern state and that came to the table, right? One of the children said, well, all people should speak English. If you don't speak English, you shouldn't be here. And so I feel like a lot of these things come up through these important discussions and activities. 
Well, I have to ask you, what do you say if I am a parent or a teacher or, and I hear some uh, little kids say that, how do I address it as an adult? What's, what's the wording I should use or try to use? Yeah. So um, I think our inclination is to say, where did you hear that? Right. And you don't say that <laughs> Try and hold, because it's not, it's not productive. Right. So we, we could, um, if it's a very young child and they're parroting something offensive I, as a mom, I want to know where that came from. Right. So I can limit exposure, but in, in reason, with the child, it doesn't serve us well. Um, so what I what I typically say is, why do you say that? What makes you say that, right? And so the best thing you can do with these little people who are often concrete thinkers is show them over and over again how this line of reasoning or what they believe is incorrect, right? With examples um, over and over and over and over again. So that's usually what I do. And then sometimes I will present after we've talked about that, then they're all, they also tend to be very egocentric, right? So if it applies to them or if it impacts them, um, it matters more. So then I find a counter situation that might apply to them. And to give you the perfect example, my daughter has glasses and um, she's often excluded or teased for that. And so again, it's another way to talk about fairness and how you would feel. How would you feel if you weren't allowed to play with these people or they didn't want to play with you because you have glasses, right? Um, so for me, that has been really moving those two um, activities paired together. One, again, getting at the why, right? And, and kind of proving proving the child wrong with multiple examples and then getting at the, the inner feelings, the empathy part, right? How would you feel if this impacted you? And I'll often pair it with a story too, because I have this crazy collection of children's literature. So I always have a story that we can come back and have a rich discussion, but it can't be a one and done kind of thing. It, it has to be impactful and that it's repeated with different iterations of the same message. Well, I have to ask now, what are some good books that people should read if they're trying to trying to come up with the right language or the right story to tell? Oh, my do goodness. Do you have all day? We could just do them all day. Um, <laughs> so there are so fabulous resources out there. Um, if you're looking for lists, there are endless sources. PBS Kids just two weeks ago aired this fantastic, fantastic special talking about kids, um, talking to kids about race and racism, right? And so they had all of these wonderful resources to go along with that. So you can find a book list there as well as fantastic clips. Um, but my personal favorites, and again, it depends on your purpose, right? So is your purpose to just talk about difference and how enriching difference is, then you might want to choose something um, that has to do with the colors of meat. There are all kinds of books centered on noticing skin color and noticing hair type, right? Um, if you want to get more into, and let me pull, you want to get more into sure. the fairness and how skin type is just one characteristic and it doesn't define who you are, but it's important to notice. I love bell hooks. I absolutely love skin again. And so this um, gets to two, two points, right? One, noticing our differences and appreciating our differences. And two, that that's a, a part of us that's to be appreciated, certainly not the whole, and that we don't um, discriminate on the basis of physical or any other characteristics um, that have to do with how we look or um, what our capabilities are. So I love that one. But if your purpose is more to talk about the history of race and racism, oh, Julius Lester has a fantastic book too. I wanted to give a shout out. Um, Let's Talk About Race is, is absolutely wonderful too um, for getting at the same kinds of things, the people's individual stories, um, how our, our physical differences make us unique and how they contribute to the diversity of the world um, and enrich people's experiences. But I have two favorites that 
you can use to access the history with, with young children. Um, the first is these hands, and this is Margaret Mason. I can't say enough about this. I've used this with children as young as four years old. Um, and it's about a grandfather showing his grandson all of the things he can do with his hands. And then he brings his grandson back to know that in the 60s, he was not permitted in the Wonder Bread factory um, to touch any part of the bread making process. He was, he could sweep the floors, right? He could use some of the machinery, but he specifically says that white people did not want black people touching their bread. Um, and so this is something four-year-olds are just, their mouths are open like, what, why, right? And so um, it opens up a whole, we usually conduct an entire unit after this if I'm working in a preschool setting, um, but specific to FAIR. What's FAIR, what's unfair, what do we do when something's unfair? Um, but just a nice introduction to age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate introduction to the history, the racist history of our country. And then the other one, which I, I'm guessing you're probably familiar with, um, Jacqueline Woodson's The Other Side is absolutely wonderful too. Um, and same time period, two girls on opposite sides of the fence that are allowed to play with one another. So both of these texts um, tend to resonate with very young children and provided an entry point for these important conversations. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Dr. Joy Dangora Erickson. We're discussing ways to help kids learn about racial tolerance. Now, Joy, I want to uh, go back a little bit to what we were talking about in the beginning of the conversation. We were talking about children and, and like their ages. Um, at what age can children begin to show evidence of racial bias? Because it's pretty young. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, so we have two types of racial bias, right? We have implicit and explicit. So implicit is unconscious bias. Um, you might define it as a preference. And there are studies that typically researchers, researchers agree as early as three months, but certainly by nine months. Um, so we've got multiple studies that suggest we can see this implicit bias in that in the first year of life. There are two of them. Um, that I think are especially worth highlighting, both come from um, expert and scientist, Dr. Kang Lee out of the University of Toronto. He's been doing this work for quite some time and he's used um, Chinese infants primarily. He's worked primarily with Chinese infants and he's, at first he, um, we had multiple studies to show that there was a visual preference, right? And what do I mean by that? I mean, Children who were raised in a home with two parents of predominantly the same race would gravitate or gaze or look, right, longer at images on a computer screen of adults that represented that race. So there was, that's kind of how they established this three-month preference. Um, but Dr. Kang and his colleagues all over the world, they went further and they, came, they were able to show two um, specific findings that I think speak speak volumes as to the work that we have to do in the first year of life. The first study they did was they paired uh, own race and other race individuals, adults on the computer screen with happy or sad music. And then they timed the infant's gaze, right? And so the infant would sit on its mom or its caregiver's lap and view the screen. And what they found was a statistically significant effect that infants would gaze longer at own race paired with happy music and other race paired with sad music. And so that's, that kind of eliminates any question of whether or not there's a bias there because <laughs> you have an effective component tied to it, right? Happy and sad music, which they had um, 
they had measured beforehand to make sure that's kind of the way um, that the infants were receiving that information, that, that they either understood it to be happy or sad. So that was study number one. Um, study number two, well, I call them study number one and number two because they're important, to, especially important to me when I highlight, but that doesn't necessarily mean there weren't more studies in between. Um, but the second study that I wanted, wanted to highlight has to do with learning. And so this is so important, I feel like, for anyone that cares about, how, you know that first year of life is critical, right? And students want, or young children want to, um, you want them to absorb as much as they can in that first year of life. So what Dr. Lee and his colleagues did was they tried to see whether or not um, infants between six and nine months would follow directions from an own or other race um, individual and, and who they might follow directions more often for. And so what's, um, especially during, they had three different, three different cases, right? The three different situations, if you will. The first the adults were accurate 100% of the time. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that the adult on the screen would look towards a corner of the screen, for example, top left, and some animal, they would tell the baby to look, and some animal, a cow, a frog, what have you, would appear in that corner. And what they found is when the adult was always accurate, those infants would follow both the own and other race gaze pretty regularly and with the same amount of regularity. But when they then decreased the accuracy to 50%, so the adult would look in a corner and 50% of the time the animal would appear, the infants only followed the gaze um, of the, consistently followed the gaze of their own race individual. And that, that too had a statistically significant effect. So that's fascinating and also really important for us to know in terms of the urgency with which we wanna correct this, right? We want um, infants to see people from a variety of races. Um, and they, they developed this hypothesis in their experiments at that point. These studies came out in 2017 and studies that have, um, there are multiple studies that have supported this hypothesis. It's called the perceptual social linkage hypothesis. And so what it says is, one, our exposure, our environment influences um, the amount of implicit bias that we have, right? So why are these babies demonstrating these biases? First and foremost is the environment, the lack of exposure. But that lack of exposure has other consequences. For example, um, these babies are, they struggle to individually um, recognize the faces of other race individuals because they're not around them. Um, and so that's problematic too, right? So they think that this feeds into whether or not they trust or they'll follow directions from other race individuals in times that are more uncertain. Um, and this is the developmental period, eight to nine months specifically, babies are, are definitely developing stranger anxiety and all these other things. So it's just so crucial, it's so important that we help them to interact with and to be exposed to people from um, other races because we want them to learn all they can for one and, and because we want it, it to be a more just world or <laughs> two and probably more importantly. So help me understand what a parent should do. So I'm a parent in a single uh, race household. Um, give me examples of how I can introduce this baby at such a young age to different, um, different people of ethnic backgrounds or different nationalities without going like, here, take my baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and we also have COVID right now too. So we're like stuck in our households, but I mean, speaking from personal experience, um, and I recognize not everyone can do this. I did pull my child out of her early, 
um, education environment because it wasn't diverse enough. I, I so th that's something, and I, I, I recognize that I'm speaking from a place of privilege there, but that's one of the things that mattered most to me that she be around other people. Um, but if that is not, and especially during COVID, that's not an option. Books are huge, right? What what you read to, with your child, what you watch on TV. I mean, PBS does a decent job of representing um, a variety of people, but I mean, there there's certainly reason. There's some area for critique as well. But books you have complete control over. What you stock in your home library is so important. Um, so I would survey that library, go through every book on that shelf, and if it's not representative, then you you need to fix that, right? And and it's something that you can do. Um, you can go to the library, right? There's there's lots of different. Dolly Parton has a service um, where you can bring more diverse books into your home. Does she there really? She does. Yeah, I'm, I'm blanking right now on what the name of it is, but I had a parent share that with me the other day, and I looked it up. It was legit. Everybody loves Dolly. <laughs> so it sounds like as a as a parent or a caregiver in general, um, it's important for the adult in a child's life to make sure that they're planning for these events. That that they're that that making sure that this child is in a diverse environment has to be something that you're actually thinking about when it comes down to, um, I guess, what your mission statement would be for your family? Yeah. <laughs> Is that along the right lines? Absolutely. It has to be intentional. Okay. So, Joy, can you offer some resources for adults? Sure. Yeah, I would be happy to do that. I think... Um, it's really important to highlight that there are a lot of people right now making really positive move to read more, write and listen to podcasts around um, anti-racism and, and bias and all of these important, but it's, I think the most important the most important advice I can give to adults is to really start inside and take stock of what's going on in there, which can be an extremely difficult thing. Um, I'm I'm conducting an autoethnography right now with a director of a preschool where the two of us are going through this together. Um, and I just want to share what's been really eye-opening in that experience is taking an implicit bias test. Um, and where can you take that? So Project Implicit out of Harvard has a freely available test online. If you just Google implicitharvard.edu, right, you can take, take, there's a variety of tests on that website, but one specific um, to black and white, and you can see for yourself um, kind of the severity of your implicit bias, right, um, or, or, or not. But I've been working at this for 10 years, and I still register implicit bias on that test. So I think it just speaks to how ingrained, how embedded white supremacy is in our culture. So that, that resource has been invaluable for myself and for others in groups that I lead to kind of say, whoa, like, I want my child to be like this, but I need to start inside. Um, and then I also cannot say enough good things about Rachel Cargill's free 30-day course, do the work, hashtag do the work. Um, so in the autoethnographies that I'm working on with, with some different individuals and some different groups, we are going through that course together um, and we are kind of dissecting what we're doing together. Before we plan, I should say that my research, my active research right now is, plan is planning anti-bias, anti-racism, civic education units in preschool classrooms in the Northeast. Um, so we do Ra Rachel's work together um, and then we plan. How are we going to reach students in different situations? Because without a clear sense of who I am and where my blind spots are, I can't effectively help 
help little people um, get at their biases or, or just kind of address the issue holistically. And enjoy one of the um, challenges that I found in talking about race and ethnic issues in a series of whatever interviews I've had for as ever long I've been interviewing people, there is this fear of accepting that bias in yourself because then that guilt follows that. So can you speak to speak to our listeners on to like how guilt, well, basically doesn't help, but how do you get over that guilt to get to a place of, of healing so that you can move on and help these, these little people? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that you, you just hit the nail on the head, right? I, I think you have to get over it because we have a responsibility to the little people who are the future of this nation. So don't get me wrong. I still have points where I wallow in these things that I've done or that I mistakes that I've made or mishaps I've had with what I've said, right? And who they've offended. Um, but I just kind of have to keep my eye on what is most important. What What's most important is stopping this, right? And, and supporting the next generation and building a better tomorrow. So that's kind of what sustains and fuels my work. It's like, you got to forgive yeah. yourself and get healthy. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going to make mistakes. Like you're going to make mistakes. You don't learn if you don't. So Joy, can you help me understand what the on race bias is? So on right race bias has, that's just kind of how researchers refer to this preference for um, people who resemble your primary caregiver. So if your primary caregiver is black, for example, you early in life, that first year of life, you tend to, these babies in the studies tend to look at look longer, gaze longer at adults on the screen that are black. If the um, primary caregiver is white, right, they would gaze longer at um, individuals who are white on the screen. And, and in Professor Lee's work, it happened to be um, Chinese Chinese individuals. Uh, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Joy Dangora Erickson. Our discussion today has been about kids learning about racial tolerance. Joy is the Assistant Professor of Early Childhood Education at Endicott College. Thank you so much, Joy, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Robin. It's been a pleasure. This is Forum Conversations, and I'm Robin Shannon here with Rebecca Gutierrez. She is a junior at Fordham Rose Hill, and she's here to tell us about her podcast that we're going to get a bunch of ears on, right? How are you doing, Rebecca? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. So tell me about the podcast, the name and the idea behind it. Sure. So my podcast is called She Was, She Is, and um, it's a podcast series exploring how women have evolved in four different um, key industries music, government, business, and sports. Um, each week's episode focuses on a different industry. And so um, we speak with industry professionals, organizations, uh, people who work in those industries just to learn about the struggles and successes of women in their field. So when will your first episode be out? So the first episode comes out um, on Friday, April 9th. And that episode is the one that's centered around the music industry. And then the one after that is April 16th, which is the episode about um, the government. And for the music industry one that's coming out, tell me uh, who you interviewed and how did the interview go? Sure, so um, I interviewed first um, Nicole Barcelona, who is the president of the organization Women in Music, which um, works to empower and advance women um, 
in the music industry, people who are performers, um, you know, executives, producers, like people at all levels of the industry. And um, our conversation went really well. She uh, gave me a lot of, you know, really kind of shocking statistics about the underrepresentation of women in all these different parts of the industry. Um, and, you know, just talked about the importance of, of having women at all levels um, of the industry and how it changes the music we listen to. And then my second interview was with um, a Brooklyn-based rock band, and uh, they're called Thick. And um, they're an all-female band. It was three really wonderful women. Um, and I just talked to them about their experience as an all-female group, um, you know, kind of just in the New York City music scene, um, some of the struggles that they've faced, um, and then also, you know, how they, how they overcame them. And Rebecca, how did you come up with the idea for the show? For the podcast yeah so i originally started thinking about um women's history month and you know there was a lot of content coming out that was focused on female female fronted stories and um i just kind of saw a bit of a gap at wfuv we didn't have a show that was um specifically to uplift women's voices and talk about uh you know kind of their successes i guess in a lot of different in a lot of different fields and so i just thought it'd be a good a good thing to add to to WPV for our listeners. So, so what's the name of your podcast and where can we hear it? So you can listen to um, She Was, She Is starting on Friday, April 9th, um, wherever you listen to podcasts and also on the WFUV website. And I'm gonna, yeah, and I'm gonna put a link up um, through my page too. Rebecca Gutierrez, thank you so much for being on Fordham Conversations. I look forward to hearing the podcast. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye.